Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, an online weekly show from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. This week we discuss the burning issues in rugby union, rich offshore clubs luring all blacks, who's going to be playing sevens at the Olympics, and concussion. We have a chat to one of the whistleblowers behind the exposure of disgraced cyclist Lance Armstrong and his doping, Tyler Hamilton. We talk hockey after the men's black sticks posted a rare win over Australia's kookaburras, and why is diving becoming part of rugby league? Say it was in the grand final, you did that, of course you're going to take a dive, you know what I mean? You're not, game's on the line, you're going to do what it takes to win. Warriors hard man Ryan Hoffman on diving in league later. Rugby union first up, and one of a few big issues this week has been the departure of a couple of younger All Blacks to big European contracts after the World Cup. First, the outstanding 23-year-old Blues back Charles Piertau signed a two-year deal reported to be worth a million dollars a year to join the Irish club Ulster at the end of the season. Then a reported paycheck of much more than $700,000 a season convinced the 27-year-old Crusaders first five, Colin Slade, to sign a three-season deal with French club Paul. And the financial pulling power of cashed-up European clubs is a bubble that won't burst. That's the opinion of one of the people in the thick of the tug-of-war, Rugby Players Association Chief Executive Rob Nickel. He spoke with our reporter, Stephen Hewson. Well, Rob, I suppose Colin Slade's departure is maybe not such a huge surprise, but, but, but is it any more significant, I suppose, than the others, or is it simply more of the same? Oh, look, I think it's, it's more of the same, and I don't mean to dumb it down by that. This is, um, this is a challenge we've been fighting for 15 years, and we're going to be fighting it for the next however long so yeah every day everyone's working pretty hard how to retain and develop our top talent and um you know it's tough it's tough work you say the battle's been going on for 15 years can it be won um i don't know that it's one of those things you ever win like we don't want to see players are such a valuable part of our environment in new zealand leaving but the reality is we're going to lose some players that we really really don't want to leave uh lose sorry and we're going to have some players that go but we know that they're making the right decision for them so it's a it's a tough one it's a, it really is a tough one but it's professional sport it's a global marketplace we are really really performance orientated we want to win we want to perform for new zealand and we need our best talent to do that and so we work very very hard on what is the sum of the parts what are the most compelling propositions we can put forward to retain our talent accepting that sometimes that's not going to be either enough or it's not going to be the right decision for the player to stay anyway. We're going to lose some people, there's just no doubt about it. In the bulk of the cases, it's always coming down to money though, isn't it? Well, I guess in a way, because we, I think, are doing a really good job around our environment. I mean, I, you know, I run the International Rugby Player Association, I'm on the board of the World Player Association, I know what other sporting environments look like, and I'm really proud of the one that we've created in rugby in New Zealand. Not, not so much... You know, we like the fact the way we perform on the global stage, and we, and we like the fact that we've got great talent. But the the real under 
tone of what we have here is that people care about everyone and we care about them as people, not as athletes. First and foremost, it's about them as people and what we can create for them, not just on the field, but off the field as well. And, and that's a massive part of this environment of success we've had in New Zealand rugby over the last decade in particular. And, you know, we've got to keep doing that. And so assuming that you're doing all that stuff right, then ultimately there comes a point where money is a, is a key part for a, for a young person looking to provide for their family. And if they've, they've given six, seven, eight years of service to New Zealand rugby and there's an opportunity offshore, then it's, it's hard to deny them that. So, yes, money can be an absolute major factor, but it's not everything. And for every guy that that is leaving for the money, we are retaining guys who are staying despite the money. So we've got to keep working really hard at it. Do you feel, then, we're possibly hanging on to players longer than we might expect to, given the money on offer? I think what has happened is we've probably punched above our weight in the last two to three to four years in particular at retaining very experienced and quality players and also some really quality players at that next tier that are so important to the fabric of not just Super Rugby, but in particular ITM Cup and the way other players come through that competition and are able to play with those Super Rugby guys at, at that level and it brings on the younger players so much more. And I think what's happened is publicly, because it hasn't been such a debatable issue over the last few years, people have probably become a little bit comfortable. But what I can say is that rest assured, none of us in rugby, whether it's the players, the agents, New Zealand rugby, the franchises, Behind the closed doors, the work has been going on to retain people and to form relationships so that when the conversations around do they stay or do they go happen, that everyone's open and respectful and upfront with each other and no stones left unturned. And I think, you know, Colin himself has made a decision. Um, It was a tough decision for him. He said that. He said he was very respectful and appreciative of the offer, which was a really compelling one from New Zealand rugby. And so at the end of the day, what's happened there is, unfortunately, Colin's made a decision to go you know, I believe it's the right decision for him because he has focused on a really thorough process, so I congratulate him on that. But it's also nice that New Zealand rugby was able to make it such a hard process and such a hard decision for him to make. What you would hate to hear is that it was an easy decision for him to make and that the, the offer from New Zealand wasn't compelling. So I think, you know, it's disappointing, but it is nice that we made that a really, really tough call. What we're seeing now, though, too, is that simply the four-yearly cycle as well. So that's why it's possibly in people's faces more that these these guys are heading off because we're coming to the end of that World Cup cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we experienced the same around 07 and the same in 2011, you know. And um, the one thing about rugby, and I think people have got to have a, a to counter the, the loss of some, some key players, both in, in terms of a Charles and a Colin, but also the guys like the Willie Hineses and, you know, the, the, the guys that are really a massive part of our environments here, you know, that have chosen that now's the right time for them to move is that at the end of the day, that creates an opportunity for other players coming through. And that's why you know, we've got to continue to invest at the grassroots level of the game. We've got to continue to create the opportunity to have quality coaches and people helping to develop the players and the teams and the, and, and the performance um, focus and, and how we deliver performances on the paddock. All that sort of stuff. It's a whole package. And, and if you get that right, then other players will step up. And it creates an opportunity and other players will step up. And it, at the moment, it feels like we're taking a hit. You know, and, and it's tough times, but we've been here before and we know that perseverance and, and just really gutsing it out and making sure that we put the most compelling options forward for players to stay. We're going to lose some, but we're going to keep some as well. And at the same time, the same amount of energy and focus is going into that whole keeping our coaching structures up, keeping the, the development pathways up and keeping the talent coming through so that we can backfill those those opportunities that are created by guys leaving. And, and if you can keep that package going, it has served us very well for the last 10 to 15 years. So, you know, 
by no stretch is, is everything lost. We're still really, really positive with where we're at and where things are heading and, and feeling good about it. But it is hard work and it, it constantly needs focus and, and attention. Rugby Players Association Chief Executive Rob Nickel there. For his part, Colin Slade has come through some tough injuries, including two broken jaws, to contest for a World Cup place again this year. And some would argue that he's surpassed both Daniel Carter and Aaron Cruden in the All Blacks' first five pecking order, with perhaps just the Hurricanes' Bowden Barrett now ahead of him. Slade freely admits that the big money on offer was a massive part of the lure of heading to France, but he says it was a tough decision. I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a reward, I suppose, for, for the hard work that I've put in, and obviously I've had my tough times, and I've, and I've fought back from that. You know, that was one thing that I was pretty determined not to go overseas when everything fell to pieces for me injury-wise. I, I thought, you know, I want to I want to prove a point that I can get back to the level I'm, I'm capable of, and you know, I feel I'm, I'm doing that. I've, I've obviously uh, gotten back into the All Blacks was was a huge uh, goal of mine, and to be recognised, I suppose, by some interest overseas is, is a, a testament to that that I've been able to get back to. To a quality level. Have you had a conversation with um, Shag, and if so, what, what was the conversation like? Yeah, I've had a few conversations with Shag, obviously before, and and uh, you know again afterwards after I've after I'd signed. So you know he obviously did everything he could to try and make me stay, but you know he did a really good job with him with New Zealand rugby. Did a really good job at putting together something together that would make me stay. But um, you know ultimately he came to a, to a decision that, that I wanted to make, and that was to go overseas. He was disappointed, but he understood my decision. You know if. Certainly made it clear the reasons why I'm going, and he accepts that. In the end, was the money just too good to refuse? It certainly had an element of it. You weigh up whether these opportunities are going to come up again in the future, and ultimately, I wasn't prepared to take that risk. You know, living in the South of France is a hell of an opportunity, and, and obviously, the money was the thing that initially caught my attention. But you know, I wouldn't go anywhere if I didn't want, wasn't prepared to play rugby there and and live there. So you know, the money was obviously a massive thing, but it wasn't everything. And Colin Slade says the All Blacks coach Steve Hansen, that's Shag of course, has told him that he will still be considered for the Rugby World Cup squad later this year. Another rugby issue which cropped up this week was just exactly which All Blacks would jump ship to push for an Olympic gold medal in sevens when the game returns in the shortened form next year in Rio. We don't know all the big names yet, but Bowden Barrett has this week put up his hand to play for the All Blacks sevens in 2016, while fellow first five Aaron Cruden announced that he won't be chasing Olympic selection, as did All Blacks number eight Kieran Reid. All Blacks interested in playing at the Olympics had to express an interest to Sevens coach Sir Gordon Titchens, who has said that any interested All Blacks would need to play several tournaments on the World Series circuit and they'd miss about six rounds of next year's Super Rugby tournament. And finally for our National Winter Code for this week, the issue of concussion and how it's handled. That's still causing controversy following the enforced retirement of former All Blacks prop Ben Afiaki. Despite being concussed last week against the Crusaders, the Highlanders' tighthead prop, Josh Honick, was named to start again this weekend against the Blues in Dunedin. That eyebrow-raising selection came after Honick returned to the field after apparently being knocked out in Christchurch, and it's earned plenty of media attention. But Highlanders coach Jamie Joseph says Honick's fine, and his selection isn't an issue this weekend for the Blues game. No, not at all. Not for us. Obviously, Josh went through a set of protocols all week. He's come through those fine, and, and so we've opted to select him. He took a knock, and he's got taken off, and then he has to set a set of tests. And to my memory, he's the only player that I've, I can remember that has passed those protocols mid-game. So 
Oh yeah, he went pig hunting yesterday and then walked up hills and got himself a hundred pound ball. So things are looking up for Josh on it. Would you agree that maybe um, medical staff, doctors on field, should have a, a video monitor to view the, the sort of injuries that might be? Um, well, I'm not sure about that. I think you need to ask the right people. I know that if there's a car crash and no one looks for the CCTV, they go and care for the people that are, you know, sitting down in the middle of the field, and that's exactly what our people did. It's, it's concussions are confusing thing. It's not like cut and dry. You know, your X-ray, you broke your arm. Concussions are Yeah. Well, look. The, what the protocol says is if a, if a player takes a knot, they go off and they have a breather. They take 10 minutes. They answer a set of questions. What are really a pretty tough. But I understand. And I measure that by the fact that not Josh is the only guy that's actually returned. So and he's a front row forward. And then they've got another set of tests for the next three or four days, which is also passed, so, yeah. Highlanders coach Jamie Joseph there. This is Extra Time. I'm Richard Wayne. Still to come, we talk hockey with the men's Blacksticks hero from their tournament win over Australia's Kookaburras in Malaysia. And Warriors forward Ryan Hoffman discusses diving in rugby league. Now though for a chat with a redeemed American cyclist who helped lift the lid on the sports doping culture and who gave evidence to a grand jury in the US against disgraced seven-time Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong. Tyler Hamilton was one of the world's top-ranked pro cyclists. He raced for the US postal team alongside Armstrong. And Hamilton was also part of Armstrong's sophisticated and secret doping program. Hamilton's career came to a sudden end in 2004 after he won a gold medal at the Olympics, then tested positive for a banned substance and was exiled from the sport. That led to him turning from denial to whistleblower, exposing the culture of drug use within his old team. Hamilton says it was a huge relief to finally tell the truth. The now 44-year-old is in New Zealand, speaking to Sport New Zealand and drug-free Sport NZ, and he also spoke with Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan. Going in and speaking in front of the federal grand jury was uh, just a massive just load off my back. I'd been keeping a lot of secrets and lies in for over a decade. When I finally told the truth and the whole truth, it was uh, yeah, a huge relief. And from that point on, I've, yeah, I knew I had to really sh scream the truth from the top of my lungs. One of the amazing aspects <clears throat> of the story was the extent to which this program was somehow able to be, despite all the suspicions, all the allegations, all the journalism, all the books that got written, was able to continue. How bald-faced lies were able not only to happen, but to be successful. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, we live by this code, and this code was the, the code of the emerita, you know, the code of silence. And uh, we all understood it, we all did it, and, you know, that was a one of the one of the reasons why I did not tell the truth after I did get caught was, you know, I you know I had a band of brothers and I didn't um, you know I was following the rules, keeping my mouth shut. Which was it? Was it a band of brothers and loyalty, or was it following the rules and fear? It was, <clears throat> it was a combination of, of everything. You know, I was scared for myself that you know I'd be blackballed from the sport of cycling forever. Uh, you know, I was scared about telling that you know the truth about the, you know, the way that cycling was at that time, you know, it was rotten to its core. Uh, you know, doping was prevalent throughout the peloton and uh, you know, it was ugly. I was scared that it was just going to take down the whole sport. 
She'd kept this secret for six years. What was it about that phone call in 2010 from a federal, federal investigator that made you change your mind? Yeah, well, it was either, you know, go in to the, to the grand jury and tell the truth or, um, you know, lie and possibly and go to jail. And, um, you know, I basically backed up and backed up and backed up. And there I was at the edge of a cliff and it was either jump or tell the truth. And, you know, my mind was twisted for a long time. And, you know, I deviated from my true self for a long time. You know, my fir the first time I started doping was in the spring of 1997. Uh, it was a little red egg-shaped pill that the team doctor gave me. And it was uh, testosterone. He told me it was for my health, that it wasn't doping. It was for my health, he kept saying. And uh, that's what really got me off track that, you know, I was racing clean up to that point. And, you know, once I once I crossed that line, then the next, you know, the next thing that was uh, they introduced me to was a drug called EPO, which um, a little injection will increase your red blood cell produ production, red blood cells bring oxygen to your muscles. And it was a total game changer in a, in a sport like cycling. You know, it had been it didn't start in 1997 doping. It didn't start in 1993 when Lance Armstrong arrived. It had been going on a long time. Was the, you know, UCI, was the UCI complicit? In fact, and sometimes did it almost assist or warn cyclists of looming risks yeah. to what they were doing? Yeah. Did that actually yeah. happen? At what level? It happened. It happened. There were drug cover. There were cover up, positive test cover ups for for athletes. There were warnings before athletes got tested. There was. Um, uh, and they knew there was a problem in the sport, a doping problem within the sport, and they did not do, you know, I can't say they didn't do anything, but they, they didn't do a whole lot to, to, to try to change it, to try to change the mentality. And it, 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 we've come a long way since then, and that's great. Um, you know, it's not completely clean, but I think we're on on the on the way to a clean sport. What of what of Lance Armstrong? Because a lot has been made of his personality, and a lot of people have been on the receiving end of his wrath. I can think of uh, a, a New Zealander who was involved in the team. Yeah, uh, Stephen Swart. Stephen Swart is one. Swart. I can think yeah, of another yeah, yeah. New Zealander who was involved on the uh, in the team who's also been on the receiving end of that. We spoke to Emma yeah. O'Reilly, who was involved yeah. in the management of that team, who got called every foul name under the sun when she tried yeah. to blow the whistle. What of his personality and his role in sustaining these lies? Is it overblown? Is it underdone? What was his impact on you? Um, yeah, I mean, I was definitely, you know, we were teammates for a while. I helped him win, it, win his first three Tour de France's. He definitely was, you know, uh, you know, pushed, pushed the doping. Um, but you know, he never had a gun to my head. You know, I knew what I was doing, but he definitely pushed it and was, um, I eventually became a competitor of his. I went on and led my, led a, went to another team and, um, competed against him and we became, uh, kind of like enemies. And, um, yeah, I was scared. He scared me. He scared me a lot. I was scared of his power. He had a lot of power within the sport. You know, he called a lot of shots within the sport and, uh, he had connections with the, you know, the, the governing body, the sport, the president. Tyler Hamilton talking to Catherine Ryan. Two to go in extra time, and the final features one I never thought would need to be made. How has diving become part of the hard man code of rugby league? Now it's hockey. The New Zealand men's team won the Sultan Aslan Shah Cup this week in thrilling style with a 3-1 shootout victory over arch-rivals and world number ones Australia in Malaysia.
The Blacksticks were leading the final 2-1 nearing full time and seemed to have sewn up a famous win over the Kookaburras, only their third since 1987, before a penalty stroke was awarded to the Australians in the last minute of regular time. Blacksticks goalkeeper Devon Manchester couldn't save that, but he proved the hero in the resulting penalty shootout. He made three saves as his side snared the title. The understated Manchester, who won keeper of the tournament, told reporters on arrival in Auckland Airport that he enjoyed the rare victory. Yeah, well, it was definitely a busy game, but it was uh, good to keep them out for most of it. Very, very, very stoked. Uh, it was the first time I've ever been in Australia, and definitely even some of the older boys in the team played a few more games than I have and haven't beaten them in a while, so good feeling, and to do it in the final, even better. Yeah, you get that psychological edge as well, and a shootout too, over Australia. Yeah, yeah, we seem to uh, always go to shootouts in our playoff games. It's something we've done quite a lot recently, but um, quite a few of them come out in our favour, so I suppose that's a good thing. You've come back from a shoulder injury? Yeah, so I had operation on my shoulder about six or seven months ago, so this is my first hockey at all, really, for six or seven months. Yeah, so it was uh, good to sort of find form almost immediately. Yeah, I bet, and I guess going in and having Australia, did you feel the pressure was really hit on you? Uh, no, not really, not more than any other game. Um, try not to think about things that way, otherwise it all can get a little bit too much. You just sort of play it as it comes. How significant is it to beat Australia? Is that sort of wagging rights? Yeah. It's not a team that we beat very often. I mean, not many teams around the world beat them very often, and to beat them in the final and get it over them is really good. Good to see them on the other other side for once, uh, picking up the silver and we're getting the goal. That last goal they got that sent it to the shootout, how frustrating was that? Oh, it was fairly frustrating. Personally, don't think it was a stroke, but you just got to sort of move past those things and, and get on with the next bit, which was the shootout. How did you feel when you knew it was the shootout and it sort of, a lot of it rested on you? Um, oh, I've done quite a few shootouts. I don't really feel too much pressure. I kind of view it the other way around. I mean, the strikers of the other team are the one who have to score the goals. Uh, they've got eight seconds to score. All I have to do is stay in the contest for eight seconds, and um, then I win, basically. So that's, that's how it went. And as you saw, a few of their guys just missed the goal. So you just put the pressure on them, and, and they have to do something. And how did you feel when that last shot went wide, last Australian shot went wide? Well, when it initially went past me, I had no idea whether it was missing the goal or not. You turn around and say it's missed, and it's a, a great feeling, and you know you, you've won the tournament, and away you go. Biggest moment of your hockey career? Yeah, so far it is, definitely. First final I've won with New Zealand. Yeah, like I said before, first time I've been in Australia as well, so it's, it's right up there. This puts you in good stead ahead of Olympic qualifiers, that's for sure. Yeah, it sure does. Um, good confidence in the team, belief in our processes and, and um, in each other that we can perform under pressure when we need to, uh, especially with the way that Olympic qualifiers work. It more or less comes down to one game in that tournament, whether you qualify or not. It's it's a good stepping stone for June. Still, we still have to go, you have to win, you have to qualify there. This doesn't do anything for us in terms of the Olympics, but definitely gives us some good belief and good confidence that we can, you know, Australia best side in the world and we've shown we can beat them, so why not anyone else? Devon Manchester there. June's Hockey World League semi-final in Argentina is a qualifier for the Rio Olympics next year. The top three of the ten teams competing gain automatic entry to the Games. Finally, for extra time, a quite extraordinary admission from one of Rugby League's hard men that he took a dive to try to affect an NRL game. Rabbitohs forward Glenn Stewart confessed to Australian media that he tried to hoodwink match officials on Monday night by milking some contact in the build-up to a try scored against his South Sydney team.
that resulted in an obstruction call from the video referee, which denied North Queensland a try, though the Cowboys went on to win the game regardless. But local side, the Warriors, aren't worried about the increasing frequency of diving. Warriors forward Ryan Hoffman believes it's just gamesmanship and it shows how desperate league players and teams have become that they'll emulate football and simulate injury or fouls to secure two competition points. I joined a media scrum at Warriors training out at Mount Smart Stadium where Hoffman was giving credit to Glenn Stewart. Good on Glenn for telling the truth, to be quite <laughs> honest. I mean, I think the rules give players that, that opportunity and look say it was in a grand final he did that of course you're going to take a dive you know what I mean you're not games on the line you're going to do what it takes to win and, and we put our trust I suppose into the referees and the video referees to, to make the right decision Is, this, is there any someone was there some chat today that perhaps the, the refs shouldn't be able to look upstairs at, at things like that during the game because you know the players are play acting a bit to make sure that they do check it out staying down you know even though they're not really hurt that sort of thing what do you think of that should they still have that option Oh yeah I think the video is probably in a better position to check it out. I mean, the blokes in the middle, like, they're working hard enough. They're, they're looking at 26 blokes on the field and uh, everything's going. They can't have eyes in the back of their heads. So they're, um, I, I think they should still go up to video ref because the video ref's going to have the best opportunity to see the best angle. And more talk this week about the lack of use of the sin bin and almost no sending off anymore. What's your view on, on that scenario? Um, with the... Look, I think the sim bin there and the sim bin should be utilised. In terms of sending off, if you're referring to the Frizzell one, I mean, it was, a, it was terrible for that young bloke to get knocked out, but I certainly don't think it was, it was a send-off offence. But, um, look, if, if someone certainly deserves it, someone intended to hurt someone, yeah, certainly send them off. But if it's if it's just an accident, you're not going to bag a referee for, for not sending a, a bloke off for that because, you know, the one time he does send a bloke off, everyone all on top of him second guessing his decision So, and he's given the best team for, for both teams to play competitively by um, keeping the 13 blokes on, on the paddock but certainly if it's something that looks like intent, I, I, th- I think it, it, you should bring in the send off But I guess what's changed since you first came into the game is that there was more sim binning, now it just seems everything goes on report and they don't even consider some sort of instant punishment Yeah, look, it's, it's a big call to, to as, as I said, to reduce the game to 13 on 12 because you give a team a massive handicap and you'll get second guess on your decision all week so I think the the report came in is to let blokes know that we are going to look at it and it's not just going by the by so I, I, th- I think that they've got a good balance I think players are nowhere near committing the offences that deserve send-offs these days so look I, I think it's in a good state. What about the idea that report is not going to penalise the team in the game that the offence actually happens you know like you don't get any advantage if the other guy doesn't get sent off you know but the next week he gets sat down or suspended you know the team who gets offended against doesn't get the advantage yeah and that's just the reason to bring in uh, an active 18th man because it's a perfect example on the weekend the 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 doggies bloke was was knocked out and couldn't compete in the game yeah it was a penalty but i I didn't think it was a send-off offense the referee didn't think it was a send-off offense why not have, have have a fresh replacement on the bench Mate, just back to the gamesmanship thing, um, you know, diving used to be something that rugby league players would never admit to or, or probably never. Is it something that the rules of just the, the way that the rules are encourages players to take advantage of those situations? Yeah, I think it's, it's more so the obstruction rule. Um, I, I, ser- I certainly don't agree with you know, diving for injuries and, and all that sort of stuff. I, I, th- I think that's, that's a big blight on our game. But in terms of the, the obstruction rule, because the obstruction rule is... Um, come under fire and undergone a thousand different reviews that um, players aren't sure anymore. So <laughs> I think the fallback option has, has been to sort of, um, if, if you feel you're impeded, 
let, let everyone be aware of it. The Warriors forward Ryan Hoffman, some good thoughts there. The Cronulla Sharks star Michael Ennis says he believes the best way to eliminate gamesmanship in league is by removing the video replays available to NRL referees. But that doesn't wash with Warriors coach Andrew McFadden. Whether he took a dive or not, I think that the referees needed to come up with a better decision there, to be honest with you. I thought it certainly was an obstruction in my eyes, in, in my opinion, so they've got to be smarter than that. Andrew McFadden, the Warriors coach, and his team play the Cowboys in Townsville on Saturday night. And that's extra time for this time. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Richard Wayne. Remember, you can always find the latest sports news on our website, radionz.co.nz. Kakito. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.